I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I am delighted to be sitting here across from Leslie Jameson. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling books, The Recovering and The Empathy Exams, and the novel, The Gin Closet. She's a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, and she directs the graduate nonfiction program at Columbia. Her latest essay collection is called Make It Scream, Make It Burn. Hey, Maris. It's so wonderful to be here. Yay. So happy to have you. I'm actually, I'm coming well, with a few stops on the way, I'm coming from my last workshop up at Columbia, so I am I am um, saturated with my Your students, with my day job, and my students, and their ideas, and their words, and their needs, and all of it. Be- so, before we start, then tell me tell me what their biggest concerns and needs are. Um, you know, that's like a, a question I could spend so many hours <laughs> answering. I, I love my students. And part of what I part of what I love about them is like both that they teach me about the world in this kind of basic way that I'm constantly learning about stuff that I didn't know about. One of my student essays we were talking about today was about my ministry, which was not something I was familiar wow. with. And I have that experience of gratitude all the time where I'm just like, you guys are my teachers. Um, but I also love, and I, maybe this gets to the needs part, I love how seriously and passionately they are in the thing, you know? They're, yes. they're, they remind me, not that I need reminding because I'm still <laughs> a neurotic and insecure writer, but, <laughs> you know, they remind me of just what happens when you bring yourself and your work, you know, out into the open, just how primal and vulnerable that is. And there's like a real beauty in that, I think, in that vulnerability. It can be wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. And, and, and yeah, awful. <laughs> I have – one of my strongest memories actually from grad school from being in an MFA program was um, a terrible workshop after which I ended up, you know, in the – bathroom stall of like our little wooden building and you know just just really crying it out but I remember having this thought when I was in that bathroom stall 
of being glad to be crying about something that wasn't a man. You know what I mean? Where I was like, I love that I I, I care about this that. enough to like wreck – that this can wreck me too, you know? <laughs> I love that. And I do feel like – I don't know. I feel like that's such a big theme in your work as like, uh, <laughs> look at us. We're complex people. We can be obsessed with ourselves and the people around us and also all of these outside things. Yes, totally. That there's room that it's not like a finite economy of attention or yeah. obsession or vulnerability that you can sort of be like entered by the world in terms of what you care about or what can devastate you or what can overwhelm yeah. you. It can be lots, lots of things. Yeah. And I feel like I love in this collection the obsession with obsession. Yeah. I know. That was a great privet for my bathroom stall story. <laughs> to the, to the book. Um, yeah, I know. I was trying I was actually I, I was talking to a Lyft driver at some city on the book tour. I can't remember which one. And I was trying to explain exactly this, like the book's obsession. With obsession. And I think it might have been for him one of those things where he was like, I wish I'd never like started, started <laughs> making small talk with this person I'm giving a lift ride to. But um, but that idea that like there were a particular – that one way to think about the book is that each essay has a particular obsession or a particular set of obsessions at its core. But that across the entirety of the book, I'm interested in that part of us that gets summoned by becoming sort of completely consumed by a thing. And I, I think I I do experience a kind of awe often when sure. I see people sort of so fully in something's thrall. And I I love your sense of awe, which remains throughout the whole collection too. Like I, I feel like Especially in nonfiction journalism today, we're we're all meant to be very cynical about the world and how it works. And for sure, there's a lot to be yes. cynical about yes. now more than um, ever, etc. <laughs> yeah, but I do. I think that I think cynicism, when cynicism has a monopoly on our affect or the affective postures that are sort of allowed or okay, I think that can leave a lot out that's important. And I think often the things that were right to feel cynical about, like all the ways that various forces of power, administrations, mm -hmm. like dehumanize people on a daily basis, like that cynicism to me is connected to states of awe and veneration where it's like if you feel a sense of awe at like the infinitude of any given person or like you were saying earlier, like the complexities we all hold, it's like that awe should be one of the forces that's standing in the way of like dehumanizing anyone. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think it 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 definitely makes the first few essays in the collection feel um non-judgmental and open you know you you go and explore a bunch of different quirky i guess that's the word um obsessions yeah i think so the the first few essays in the book are some of the longer reported pieces mm -hmm. in the book i sort of have one hat that i wear in this life and and in this book as a as a journalist and so the the first essay is about a collection of people who have become obsessed with this elusive blue whale known as the loneliest whale in the world there's a an essay about uh families who believe their children 
have past life memories and have been reincarnated from these prior lives that still have some hold on them. Um, and then there's an essay about second life, yes. that kind of antiquated digital realm from like 2007 yes. or that hit its heyday in 2007. Uh, but uh, thinking about people who spend massive amounts of time leading lives as digital avatars online, which is, of course, a sort of literalized version of what many people do in leading large portions of their life online yes, on social yes, media. absolutely. Um, and in a way, that last piece actually about Second Life, I sort of went into it thinking it was an essay about a quirky niche culture. Right. But partway through, and thanks to some very smart readers in my life who were like, why are you talking about this as if it's some obscure practice to right. spend massive now portions of your life online? Yeah. It's not obscure at all. It's and like we work on our mainstream. brands and what we project. Yeah. And yeah, totally. And the kind of that desire to sculpt a self that is related to but distinct from and maybe culling related to but distinct from your actual real life self and maybe making visible the parts of yourself that you wish were more visible in day-to-day life. I feel like in Second Life that looks like, you know, being a goth princess with a ferret on her shoulder (laughs) in like a treehouse or something. But not to be reductive about it because I actually found right. – I did find states of awe in relation to Second Life too. But that's different from a sort of cultivating a particular kind of like sardonic Twitter voice. But they right. actually speak to pretty resonant psychological impulses, I think. Right. Yeah. I I, ha- I am partly that goth lady with the <laughs> ferret on her shoulder. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Call me out. I'm, <laughs> part of me is in the goth lady. Part of me is in the ferret. Part of me is on Twitter. It's all <laughs> multitudes. Um, but one of the things you write in the first part that really stuck out at me was that metaphor itself is, is a solve for loneliness. Tell me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in a way, it, it that insight in that essay was another version of what I was just talking about with like kind of going into that piece on Second Life, thinking maybe it was about one thing and right. realizing that underneath that surface, there was maybe something broader or more resonant. I think in 52 Blue, the first essay in the collection, mm-hmm. which I, you know, at first I thought it was about this elusive blue about whale. The whale. And right. then I thought, well, yes, it's about this whale who has a higher pitched song than any other whale and is always tracked alone. And who is he? And how do we find out about him? But really, the heart and soul of this piece yes. is the people who have become obsessed with this whale and why they're obsessed with him. But then there was like even another turning of the screw where the essay is very much about those people, but it's also about why there's something appealing to them about the sheer fact of turning this whale into a metaphor for whatever they need him to be. And that's where I sort of got to that idea of metaphor as a kind of consolation or as a solve for loneliness insofar as metaphor is always taking two unlike things and Mm -hmm. finding some likeness between them. And so there's a kind of connective work that metaphor is doing that, you know, maybe not always accurately, but it comes from that impulse to say, you know, uh, these two points that might seem far apart actually have some kind of linkage between them and yes. that, that the possibilities of that linkage can can feel like a kind of company, I think. 
It can. And I, I just feel like that's such a it's such a hopeful idea in these days. <laughs> do you feel I have not to turn it around, but like do you feel like there are things that you outside of you in the world that you've attached to in that way or that you felt like like this is my spirit animal or this is this like thing out there, this person out there that I feel this weird kinship with? Oh yes. Yeah. I mean, just off the top of my head. Um, the pugs I follow on Instagram and, <laughs> and Bernadette Peters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These are both valid answers. Yeah. Do you have a theory about why pugs? I mean, does one even need to ask? Does that betray a Well, I have one. Yeah. So that's a big deal. But but <laughs> I, I, it's, deal. it's really just that their eyes are so big and so they are able to convey so much emotion yeah. in every single yeah. little thing they do and it's yeah. amazing yeah yeah i think it's like it's almost like yeah having big eyes i wonder if that's like the dog version of being a blusher or something where it's almost like you can't control it yeah. you're always yep. like a barometer of intense feeling that's just broadcasting it <laughs> and it's she's like um Anytime you need a reaction shot, she's just there doing something with her face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you can dress them up funny, too. Yeah. Um, That's one thing they have over whale, elusive blue whales, yes. I think, is, like, the costume The angle. costumes are, are good. You can actually dress a pug up as a whale. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't dress a whale up as a pug. It would – I think it would be much harder. It would be harder to find a You're the journalist here, but <laughs> – I've just got my next piece. Yeah. <laughs> and then I love that the 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 second section of your book is called Looking. And it's about subjects and objects of of your your work and other people's work. Um but let's start out the concept of of the assignment from the tra travel magazine to go anywhere in the world and not know where you're going until a couple of days before is like, for, I know a lot of people who've done this. Mm -hmm. That particular assignment. That particular yeah. assignment. And every time I hear some version of the story, I, I feel like I'm having a nightmare where I forgot my clothes at home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is something definitely sort of stressful about it in the vein of the dream where you have to show up for the test you haven't studied for. And I think in a way that idea of traveling to a place that uh, you don't know you're going to as a form of like failing to study for the test. Yes. I mean, that idea shows up in the piece itself in yeah. certain ways because, and I would be really curious to hear about other people's experiences of the assignment, but I ended up going to Sri Lanka and yeah. a lot I think the most common thing is to is to have a city like that you go to which kind of contains things a little bit more but Sri Lanka right. was like they were country. like there's a whole country um war torn yeah and, and Sri Lanka is has you know there's a lot as there is in any country but right. you know this this was 2014 it was five years since the end of the civil war in 2009 right. but of course like the civil war wasn't over in terms of its enduring impact. And so there was like one section of Sri Lanka more in the south and the center of the country that was, you know, had this very um, uh, 
robust tourist industry. I think just a couple years before it had been named by the New York Times as like the top tourist destination in the world. Like it's very beautiful, you know, but there's also this really uh, socially, politically ravaged landscape and a lot of loss and a lot of grief that also in the ensuing years had a massive tsunami. And so um, I felt in my 24 hours of preparation before I went, (laughs) this like massive sense of like almost predetermined inadequacy like how was yeah, I going to do mean, justice to this the... yeah 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 a and lot of st- I think I was having a real version of your stress dream and I was talking to a lot of people who knew more about Sri Lanka than I did which felt like a first step and I yes met up with some journalists there as well but um, oh that's great I think I part of my impulse to sort of talk a little bit about the terms of the assignment was to really try to make one of the subjects of the piece, like what does it mean to show up somewhere that you don't know enough about and how does that inflect and distort your gaze? Yes. And it's that it seems like going to a country where war has has been the major focus of so much of the history of it, recent history, that's that's so much, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? pressure. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and I think it's like that it's, I think that's part of why I knew one thing that I wasn't going to be able to do, which was really in any way do justice to or provide some kind of comprehensive portrait of the damage that that war had wrought um, and like numerous abuses on the hands of the government. And, um, but I think I I also feel very wary of writing, like, I guess aesthetically, that gets so cluttered in preemptive disclaimers yes. and apologies yes. that it kind of can't get out of its own way for long enough to say anything at all. So I also didn't want to no, – mm. who wants to read 3,000 right. words of me being like, well, I don't really well, have anything pretty, to but- say. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, I, so I, I wanted to balance, like, a kind of – grappling with the limits of what I could say with right. also like saying something. Yeah. Um so you should buy the book and see what Yeah, exactly. Say. Exactly. <laughs> Keep and yes, we should be pushing the book. <laughs> um and even more so, I mean, a couple of my favorite essays um in the book are the first is about James Ag. Did I say that correctly? I think so. Okay, good. Um and the circumstances in which he wrote, let us now praise famous men. And then the following essay um, about the photographer, Annie Appel. Tell me about observing the observer. Yeah. So um, the title essay of the collection, the one about James A.G., Make It Scream, Make It Burn, started as a comparison of let us now praise famous men, this crazy 415-page examination of these three sharecropper families in Alabama in the 1930s that also really becomes an examination of A.G.'s own, his privilege guilt, his feelings of inadequacy kind of in the vein of what we were talking about. Right. How will he be able to portray these people in the fullness of their lives and the in the hardships of their lives? Um, and – that book had been a major touchstone for me for years, mm. but 
at a, it was originally written as a commission for Fortune magazine, right. but never published in that form as a magazine piece, only published in this like crazy other form that AG <laughs> wrote once Fortune killed the original. And so right. what, what happened was at a certain point in his like Greenwich Village townhouse, the original manuscript that Fortune magazine hadn't published was unearthed and Melville House published it. And so what I was doing was looking at like, what did the kind of straight, quote unquote, straight reportage right. version of the story look like? And then how did AG's guilt and crazy hyper annotated self-consciousness yeah. sort of work with this reportage and digest it and turn it into something else? And so it really became a way of looking at, among other things, what self-awareness does when you're documenting other lives, how it can illuminate complexities about those lives, but also make it kind of about yourself in a way because a lot of Let Us Now Praise Famous Men is about those families, but a lot of it is about age too and his, you know, <laughs> sort of the ways in which guilt can become its own form of self-absorption. Yeah. And I, and I feel like you, this collection is so good at just reinforcing the idea that anyone who's doing reporting is bringing their own viewpoints and biases and personal affinities to, to reporting. Yeah. And, I, and I've and i always been less drawn to the idea of trying to banish all of that baggage or all of those affinities or all of those investments to achieve the impossible clean slate of objectivity and more interested in what can happen when we confess those investments and confess that baggage. And I think part of my hope for the structure of this collection or one of my intentions in mm -hmm. structuring it was not just within an individual piece, although I do this as well, not just confessing sort of this was some of the baggage I brought, but to have the arc across the book start with these very reported pieces yes. and then circle by the end of the book into these much more personal pieces that are examining a lot of the preoccupations around what does intimacy look like? How can mm -hmm. we ever get close to other people? What does longing look like in our personal lives? And what is what happens when our longings are quote-unquote satisfied, like, mm -hmm. to illuminate some of those grapplings that were, like, living or running, like, subterranean rivers underneath some <laughs> yes. of the reporting in the beginning of, of the book. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and that feels really freeing, too. I wonder, is that, is that something your students grapple with a lot? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think my students, I mean, one of the things I love about teaching is that I feel like a lot of the things that my students are wrestling with are still things. It's not like I'm like, oh, I remember when I wrestled <laughs> yeah, with that. Right, right. It's like I'm You're still, still wrestling there. with it. And certainly, certainly that question of when and how does the first person show up in a given reported piece, mm -hmm. both around how much of the process of reporting should I narrate and how much of the sort of personal investment that I'm bringing to this reporting right. should I narrate and certainly this – anxiety that there's something indulgent or self-absorbed about bringing in too much of the I or too much of the personal and relatedly, I think, a set of anxieties about personal writing and, yes. you know, uh, why would anybody care about these experiences <laughs> that I've had or do these experiences need to be extreme or unique in some way for people to care about them? And right. It's not like they're getting those anxieties from nowhere. They're probably getting them yes. from like online editors who are like, what makes your experience unique or extreme right. enough for somebody <laughs> right. to care about it, you know? Right. And, and it's just 
uh, a question of how they do it, right? <laughs> I think so. I mean, I think I, that's certainly what I believe about what what makes writing meaningful is that it's less about the extremity or like superlative quality of the content or the experience itself and more about what questions you're asking of the experience. And I think we've understood that in fiction for so long. Like, right. Of course you could have a novel about an ordinary marriage or of course you could have a or novel about nothing happens. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's like a little bit of a tougher sell to have that account in nonfiction, I think. I think oh, we, when, it, when a story comes to the world, I think we're more likely to say, well, what makes this story special and to discount the kinds of things that, of course, we value in literary fiction, like its examination of consciousness or the way in which it's right. using language to, like, portray experience. Like, these matter just as much, I, I think, in nonfiction as fiction. So it's not always just about the object you're examining or the life you're examining. It's about what, how you're seeing it. And I would even guess that even more so than in fiction, in nonfiction, people are looking for the bow that ties the story together mm -hmm. or the conclusion mm -hmm. or the the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I think, and it's something we talk about in my classes a lot, this dilemma or tension between wanting to resist really the bow tie on the package or tying the ribbon too neatly of, you know, here's the moral of the story right. or here's the takeaway epiphany, but also not wanting to resist insight entirely. Of course. It's, you know, it's yeah, kind of connected right. to the thing about not wanting to have an essay that's just a series of apologies or disclaimers. Yes. Like you also, I think, want to see a narrator on the page extracting some meaning from experience, but how do you – how do you have the sense of having arrived at some meanings without them feeling reductive or right. overdetermined or too much? Yeah, like the the Christmas present bow tie. <laughs> and and then tell me about the writing of personal essays and how the awareness of yourself as the subject uh changes the entire way you write. Yeah. I think, you know, when I first the first time I wrote a personal essay that I thought anybody would ever read was uh, a workshop that I took when I was 22, I guess. And I, you know, I got my MFA in, in fiction and my first book was a novel. Right. But I did take this one nonfiction workshop, I think kind of as an experiment. And part of what I initially really loved about writing essays was that they did they did feel like experiments to me. They didn't have the same weight on them that my fiction did where sure. I could feel a thousand voices on my shoulder saying, do it this way or don't do it that way. <laughs> Essays felt like more free. Um, but I think my initial impulse when I started to write personal essays was to be very, very hard on myself as a, yeah. as a constructed character on the page in yes. part because – it's obvious nobody wants to read like a self-ennobling account in which you make <laughs> right, yourself right, like right. really heroic yeah, and right. really virtuous and it's like everybody's allergic to that, I think. Um, but it was almost like I overcorrected mm. and thought, well, what I – which probably comes from the same – the same impulse, honestly, to like control and mediate other people's impressions of me. Right. But I thought if I could just 
sort of criticize myself in every possible way <laughs> preemptively before yes. a reader could do it to me, then I'll protect myself somehow in that way or I'll sort of say every bad thing before it could get said. So <laughs> there was this really like – a lot of my early essays were sort of melodramatically self-lacerating, you know, and it's like extremity itself became its own sort of ego where it was like, well, it's not really – everything's pretty ordinary. I'm not like <laughs> the worst person in the world, you know. Um, but I think it it – one of the arcs or one of the aspirations across my life as a writer of personal essays so far is to really bring the same desire to my portrait of myself that I – or the same intention to my portraits of myself that I bring to subjects as a journalist, which right. is just how can I be complicated on the page? How can I be, you know, um, trying to do right by the people I love but also like – failing them are also selfish and it gets back to what you were saying in the beginning about who we are in bathroom stalls like how can <laughs> yes. we be many things at once yes. you know self-absorbed and also interested in the person in the next bathroom stall yes know, do you know that kim adonisio poem oh yes yeah yes, to the to the woman yes. crying uncontrollably in the next bathroom yes. stall it's yes like, i just got chills a little bit yeah <laughs> it's a really it. there was i don't know whether you've read this news story but there was an amazing news story about a no. woman who heard a woman crying uncontrollably in the bathroom stall next to her. And she, like, I think pulled that poem up on her phone and then passed it to her or so, or like ha somehow gave it to her. I don't, but now I'm thinking like, wow, it's kind of bold to pass your spare, phone to somebody. Spare square. <laughs> <laughs> but like in a very extreme version. Totally. I know. Spare a square poem. Um, but I, 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 part of why I love that poem is that it, it suggests that experiencing pain can open you up to other people rather than just kind of like shutting you inside yourself. Yes. Um, so I think I I wanted to start constructing myself as a character on the page in ways that were just um, allowing my psyche to be many things at once mm. and point in many directions at once and and really, you know, not narrate my experiences for the sake of narrating them, but to narrate them because they opened up some set of questions that I was compelled by that could hopefully matter to yes. other people who had not lived my life but Indeed. had lived their own lives. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been so great. <laughs> it's wonderful. Uh, uh, it's wonderful to come in and talk to you. Yay. Um, before we go, please tell me what you've been reading, what you'd like to recommend. Yeah. So, well, one book that I was thinking about during our conversation, because it's actually connected to some of what we were just talking about, is this book, August 9th, Fog. Do you know it? Yes. Yeah, yes. By Catherine yes. Scanlon. FSG. Yes. Tiny yes. hardcover book. Yes. It's very beautiful, actually. Very it kind beautiful of is book. like a – it almost looks like a little – like something you would find in an archive, which is yes. kind of actually what it, yes. what it is. I've been teaching a class on archives this semester, so I, uh, every other word out of my mouth is archive. But uh, the story behind the book is really beautiful, which is that Catherine Scanlon, I think, about a decade ago found – an old diary at an estate sale, um, a, an elderly woman living in Illinois had – who was – this gets to what we're talking about – who, you know, had a very like quote-unquote ordinary life, yes. right? Like she was living in a small town yes. in Illinois. Her life was like very structured by her marriage, by her children, by the seasons, by domesticity in various senses. And uh, Scanlon spent – Years like working with this diary and ultimately created a kind of 
erasure poem out of it where mm-hmm. she took these like very distilled fragments from the diary and set them out across the course of the book. So each page has a lot of white space and then this like short searing fragment. And yes. they are so beautiful. It they really are. reads like a poem and it feels to me like um, such a beautiful testimony to the way that ordinariness is not the opposite of profundity. It's not the enemy of profundity, right? Mm. It can really be this like container for profundity. Um, So that was one book that I have read multiple times and like brought it. I remember bringing it to a play date once. One of of my very dear friends is a a poet and a mother, multiplicity, who lives very (laughs) close by. And I, I... I we were having a kind of a toddler play date, and I remember bringing her this book, and we would just read little pieces of it out loud while kids Each were like, while, yeah, oh, while kids were like killing themselves on giant blue blocks, you know. But it felt like that was what the book was about too. Is right. like life is made of these ordinary days and the meaning we find in them. Oh, I love that. What's what's your other one? Oh, what's my, <laughs> um, my other one? Is a book that um, I've loved for. A couple of years now, but recently returned to uh, Do You Know Calling a Wolf a Wolf by no. Kaveh Akbar. It's a book of poetry. It's Kaveh Akbar's first book of poetry. And it's about a lot of things. It's about uh, drinking, stopping drinking mm. and joy and uh, other people and how we are beholden to them and changed by them. Um, but it was it came into my life in a beautiful way that I think speaks to its force as a as a work, which is that not one but two different people gave it to me when I was on tour for The Recovering, which is right. also a book about drinking and stopping drinking. Um, they brought it to my reading and said, look, if you don't know this book, I think you oh, should read lovely. it. And, um, and then, you know, I end up getting to know Kaveh a little bit, who's like a beautiful, beautiful human being. Um, but it's it's really a book that like – I love for the ways in which it takes on pain, but um, always with always with joy on its radar screen. And that Aww. just feels so um, necessary to me like, right now and I think it's like a, a truth that I've been living into in lots of ways over the last like decades. So I love it. Um, Leslie, thank you. Thank you so much for having Yay. me, Maris. It's so fun to come in here and talk to you. Yay. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.